Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Senior Tiger Gao. Today, I'm here to introduce a new bestseller uh, in economics, uh, fiscal therapy, uh, curing America's debt, addiction, and investing in the future. Uh, the author is William Gale. He is the RJ and Francis Miller Chair in Federal Economic Policy in the Economic Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. He is also a co-director of the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center uh, from 1991 to 92. He served as senior economist for the White House Council of Economic Advisors under President George H.W. Bush. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Gale. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking about all this. Uh, and also uh, co-hosting the show with me is our team's uh, James Cross. James, thanks so much for being here with me. Yeah, it's great to be here, Tiger. Uh, Bill, why don't we just get started with a very uh, uh, generic question about your book, your latest book, Fiscal Therapy. Uh, can you give our, uh, our listeners a very brief summary of uh, the, the central arguments you make about the urgency of the debt crisis and also some of the potential policy solutions uh, you propose? Sure. Uh, one of the, there are two tricky things about uh, the simple message. One is it's really two problems, not one. And the other one is it's not a crisis, but it is a problem. So let me take those in turn. The two, the two problems are first, uh, the rise in debt that we're facing over the next 20, 30, 50 years. Uh, and that's basically built into the budget that spending is just permanently higher than taxes right now and is projected to continue that way. Uh, the second part of the problem, though, is what we're spending the money on the way and the way we're raising the taxes uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, if a household gets a mortgage and buys buys a house with it, and uh, that's that's a responsible use of debt. Usually, uh, if we were using the the increased debt and deficits to make investments in the future, uh, that would be OK. But instead, we're using them uh, to make transfer payments. We're, we're not investing in the future. So uh, the, the concern is the dual concern that we've got rising deficits and we're using them for the wrong things. Uh, now, the urgency of this is a tricky question uh, because you never want to tell people that a problem is not urgent because that's a guarantee that uh, they're going to put it off. Uh, but in fact, the problem is big, but it's not urgent. It's not a crisis. It's not, it's not a house on fire. Uh, one of my colleagues uses the analogy is more like termites in the woodwork, eating away slowly at the foundation of the house. So it's a problem. We need to address it. Uh, we should not be addressing it right now. We should be dealing with the economy in response to COVID and, and, and all that. But uh, this is going to stay on our radar screen. Uh, we are going to have to deal with this at some point. So as a starting point for our discussion of the book, I want to ask you about the chapter you devoted to understanding the history of the government's taxing and spending. Can you briefly discuss historical levels of debt to GDP, Budget, budget deficits, and what lessons that history might have for us today, perhaps looking specifically at periods when we had a surplus. Sure, you could divide US fiscal history in sort of two categories, uh, before Ronald Reagan and after Ronald Reagan. 
before Reagan, we only had deficits, big debt, if we had wars or depressions. And as soon as those were over, we got the fiscal house back in order, we got debt back down again, and uh, it stayed low. And this pattern repeated itself, Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Civil War, the two world wars, the depression, et cetera. Uh, Reagan came into power in 1981 and uh, started raising deficits during uh, a peacetime strong economy. And that was a first in the history of the United States. Uh, policymakers didn't like that. They corralled the debt back in in a series of bipartisan agreements in the late 80s and 90s. By the end of the 90s, we had surpluses. And believe it or not, Alan Greenspan went to Congress and told them they had to cut taxes uh, in 2001 because if they didn't, the US would run out of debt. Okay, he literally said that. And the projection said that we would hit zero publicly available federal debt in about 2007. Well, obviously we are a can-do country and we solved that problem. We will never face that problem again. Uh, instead, the debt rose because of George Bush's tax cuts and Medicare Part D and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and so on. Then the financial crisis hit, debt rose some more. Then, uh, as I mentioned, we have these deficits kind of built-ins, baked into the cake in the budget. The debt rose some more. Then the coronavirus pandemic hit and the debt rose even more. So now we're almost at uh, our highest level in history. And I think, uh, uh, I think with the bill that just passed a couple uh, yesterday or today, I'm not sure when it actually passed, but with that bill, I think we will head over, over the threshold of 106% of GDP, which was the highest level we'd ever had uh, in history. Now that itself is not so bad. Uh, the concern is that going forward, that number is just gonna get bigger and bigger because uh, right now revenues are uh, quite low. They're much lower than they were under Ronald Reagan and spending is, is higher um, in large part because of social security, Medicare, Medicaid. And uh, over time, those trends are gonna continue and the debt to GDP P ratio is going to continue uh, to rise. So I know it's sort of a hackneyed expression, but this time is different. And the reason is we've got this steadily rising debt to GDP ratio, even in peacetime, even assuming the economy is strong, and even assuming that interest rates stay low. So uh, that's the nature of the issue. It's not a situation we've ever faced in our history uh, before. Yeah, um, and, and that's that's certainly helpful to sort of get the context, historical context, moving into today. Um, and uh, I just want to clarify for our um, uh, our listeners, because sometimes we release these not when they were recorded, uh, is that this is the nine hundred billion dollar. Uh, we're, we're talking about the nine hundred billion dollar stimulus package. Uh, it's uh, Tiger tells me to say uh, it's December twenty second, um, and so uh, that's that's what's happening today. Where you know it's the omnibus spending bill. Um, and attached to it, the code relief package. Um, and I just wanted to ask, um, uh, you, you talk, you know, you, you, you've spoken about, um, you know, both just now and in the book, um, just the way that these, uh, we have these built in, uh, a built in bias towards deficit spending. There are certain expenditures on, uh, in the budget 
that uh, no matter what we do, it's not like we're adding uh, exorbitant uh, additional expenditures. It's th these are built-in items in the budget that are going to cause us to spend more than we tax. And you talked about um, Medicare, Social Security, um, uh, these programs that are that are very, uh, you know, that are uh, politically um, pretty much, um, you, you can't remove them um, politically. It's very difficult to generate the capital for that on, on the Hill or in an administration. So you could talk about, a little bit about how we can address those um, in an environment that does not want to cut um, these entitlement programs that sort of uh, set us at a disadvantage when we're trying to reduce debt? Uh, sure, there are two types of spending uh, programs, mandatory and discretionary. Mandatory uh, programs are things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, food stamps, uh, where if you, are, if you meet the criteria for eligibility, uh, you are entitled to claim the benefits. So sometimes they're called entitlements. Discretionary spending is uh, uh, spending that's authorized every year by Congress. Mandatory spending in contrast keeps going unless the law changes. Discretionary spending is authorized each year. So that's the military, education, uh, uh, transportation, stuff like that. Uh, the criminal justice, the federal criminal justice system. Uh, that has to get appropriated and authorized every year uh, by the Congress. What's happening is that the entitlements uh, are taking over the budget. They've gone over the last 50 years, they've gone from one third to two thirds of the budget. And they're likely to continue to increase. That reduces uh, fiscal flexibility on the spending side, in particular because there are very strong constituencies favoring Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid spending. So that makes spending cuts particularly hard. Uh, when people talk about you know, eliminating the Department of Education or cutting Big Bird funding or whatever, that's not gonna make a dent in spending. 70% of what the government spends is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the military and net interest. And uh, for a variety of reasons, all those things are hard to cut. So that takes us to the tax side, uh, where I think uh, there is plenty of room uh, to raise taxes. Uh, taxes, as I mentioned a second ago, are, are at a fairly low levels, lower than they were uh, even when Reagan was in office. Uh, and polls consistently show that people think that uh, high-income people and corporations uh, should be paying more uh, in taxes. Uh, I think your polls show, uh, polls do show as well that people would prefer higher social security taxes over lower social security benefits. So there are, I think there are a number of ways we could raise taxes to help close the gap. Uh, I'll just mention the other thing, the other benefit right now that's is keeping the whole fiscal picture uh, in a reasonable situation is that interest rates are so low. Uh, the federal government is a net borrower. So when interest rates go down, net interest payments go down. Just like if you're a, you have a student loan, you want interest rates to be low. The government has enormous amounts of loans. They want the in interest rates to be low. As long as interest rates stay low, the budget situation will be manageable. If interest rates take off, uh, uh, then we're gonna find ourselves in a very uncomfortable budget situation. 
and we will have to think about things like raising taxes on a broad part of the population or cutting uh, very popular spending options. So, Bill, you just talked about uh, at first first half of your response, you explained how governments work. You were saying how you know Americans routinely mistake the relative size of controversial budget items from salaries we pay members of Congress to the subsidies we allowed for public television, and, and you uh, mistaken these as the actual you know as if we slash them, we can solve the debt crisis. We actually couldn't because. Um, the bulk of it, Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare. And the second part of your response, you were explaining um, parts of how, how taxes work. I, I guess, going back to first principles, would you mind just telling us a little bit more about how this the US federal government actually accumulates debt? Whenever we say that the federal deficit goes up, what does it actually mean? Because in your book, you actually clarify that uh, what is shown on the national debt clock on Manhattan is the gross debt. And that is not does not actually have economic significance. There are other metrics that you should worry about. Yeah, the, that's a bugaboo of mine. The, the debt clock shows the gross debt and that's not really uh, the relevant figure. Uh, I will say the federal government is the most complicated financial institution in the world. And so any effort to pick out a single number that describes the entirety of federal finances uh, is likely to fall short, and I could, and I can tell you a problem, some problem with any particular number you chose. But the number that I like to use is the net debt, which is the the debt owed to the public. The gross debt includes uh, money that parts of the government owes to other parts of the government. It's like if your if your left pocket borrowed money from your right pocket, that would count as gross debt, but it obviously doesn't change your overall fiscal uh, position. That's kind of what the, the difference between gross debt and net debt is. So I prefer net debt. Uh, and um, uh, that uh, alone, the, the net, net debt will, will rise uh, inexorably uh, even if we do nothing uh, uh, to change the course uh of the budget now that that in itself is not a huge problem as long as it rises slowly and interest rates stay low as i mentioned but it's kind of a razor thin margin uh right now interest rates are low the fed says they're going to keep them low for the next several years uh and that's good but we're talking about a 30-year horizon a 50-year horizon and nobody knows what interest rates are going to be that far out in the future. So, Bill, you're essentially saying the the common, uh, I guess, metric we we re equation economists use is R and G. R is the interest rate. Uh, G is the growth rate of the economy. And if R is smaller than G, that that means uh, the interest rate, the, the the interest payments you pay is always going to be smaller than the growth rate of the economy. So it's almost like a Ponzi scheme because you can keep incurring debt and simply pay them off with because of the growth of the economy. But, but you're well, saying- it's, you it's not a Ponzi scheme if the interest rate stays below the growth rate. It, it is, you know, the interest rate, <laughs> you know, it, and that is, it's not, it's not, um, it, it, it is sustainable if the interest rate stays below the growth rate. The problem right. is we just don't know uh, whether that will be the case. I see. Now, so that, that comes back to this notion of how we deal with social security and Medicare. It may well be 
Well, so Medicare trust fund is exhausted in 2026, Social Security around 2034. Historically, uh, those programs have paid for themselves out of earmarked taxes. Uh, it may well be, though, that there's no appetite to raise taxes at those times. And uh, if interest rates are really low, it may well be that the government borrows money, uh, which is essentially the same thing as using general revenues uh, to finance uh, those entitlements. Uh, I'm not particularly recommending that, but, but in the current uh, environment, uh, I could see that happening. Um, yeah, I just want to follow up on that um, and focus on how we're going to pay for these um, obviously popular entitlement programs that are going to run out of money at various points. You've mentioned uh, how low historically our tax rates are, and you've proposed in your both your writing online and in your book uh, a VAT tax, you know, which is very popular and widely used in Europe and other parts of the world, uh, a value-added tax on most purchases um, across the economy. Could you elaborate on that um, and how you can make that a, a progressive tax? Because one of the main criticisms or critiques of that proposal is that it's very regressive and it's going to hit uh, the bottom half of the economy uh, the hardest. Um, and how can you take a VAT tax and make it politically viable and maybe use that to support these entitlement programs that are gonna run out of money? Right, uh, so let me, let me mention first that Social Security and Medicare People tend to describe them as a spending uh, problem because the spending is rising over time and revenues are staying constant. But that's really uh, sophistry because you could equally describe it as a tax shortfall. That is when policymakers uh, provided these benefits to households, they knew the benefits were gonna go up over time but they chose not to provide taxes uh, to pay for those benefits. So you could argue that the problem isn't that spending on those programs is too high, but rather the taxes for those items are too low. And um, uh, so I try to describe the debt uh, problem, not as a tax or a spending issue, but uh, as sort of two sides of a scissor that, you know, they. It takes two sides to do the cutting, and it's the imbalance between the two uh, that causes the problem, not, not the level of uh, either one. Uh, in terms of value-added tax, uh, it's a great idea on paper. Uh, a lot of countries use value-added taxes because they are efficient. Uh, they are good at raising revenue. Uh, in the book, I talk about Willie Sutton being the bank robber asked, being asked why he robbed banks. And he says, because that's where the money is. And uh, value added taxes are where the money is in uh, uh, tax reform. Every major country has a value added tax except us. Uh, and people may be surprised to know that Republicans have proposed value added taxes numerous times uh, in the last decade. Uh, Ted Cruz, Paul Ryan, Herman Cain, Rand Paul, uh, all of their taxes were value-added taxes. Now, they wouldn't call them value-added taxes because that's a dreaded instrument of European socialism, but what they were proposing was functionally uh, a value-added tax. 
Uh, now the problem, uh, well, they wanted to use the value added tax to replace the corporate tax. Uh, a lot of liberals who have looked at it want to use the value added tax to, to say, provide health insurance uh, or to pay for universal health insurance. Uh, what, um, what I proposed was a value added tax as a way to raise revenue uh, in, in an efficient manner. The concern with that is that the value added tax, which is a consumption tax, hits the poor harder than, than the rich. That's a valid concern. So I propose that it be coupled with a universal basic income uh, set at two times the poverty line. The combination of a 10% VAT and a universal basic income set at 2% of the poverty line would help significantly households in the bottom two-fifths of the income distribution. It'd basically be a wash for households in the middle fifth, and it would impose all the net tax burdens on households in the top two-fifths of the income distribution. So it would be a very uh, progressive tax and an efficient tax uh, that could be used uh, to raise revenue. There would be significant amount of revenue left over uh, to address other needs after, after paying the universal basic income. So um, uh, I think it has, it, it has possibilities. Uh, the famous quip about the value added tax was from Larry Summers in the 1980s, who said that America doesn't have one uh, because uh, liberals think it's regressive and conservatives think it's a money machine that would fund a lot of government. And he said we would get a value added tax when liberals uh, realize it's a money machine and conservatives realize it's regressive. So um, I, think, I think he's basically right. Uh, 30 years later, I think that's still the situation we're in. Liberals don't trust the value added tax even though European countries have value added tax and use it. If you look at their system versus ours, the big differences on the tax side is the value added tax. The big difference on the spending side is they spend a lot more on social initiatives uh, than we do. But liberals don't trust that that combination would occur. Uh, conservatives don't trust that the value added tax wouldn't raise the size of government. So, uh, uh, even though they acknowledge it's an efficient tax. Uh, so we face some obstacles here in the U.S., but I still think it's a good idea. Um, yeah, uh, that's, that's very helpful, especially for understanding, for an American audience who might not understand. I think uh, if you ever go to Europe, you can, see, you can see when you go to the store, the value-added tax is very salient, very clear. In the U.S., it's a less familiar concept. Um, to pivot to another tax proposal, I think uh, shares some similarities with the value added tax, a carbon tax, and you mentioned this in your book as well, um, which is going to hopefully address two long-term issues that have problems in terms of political viability in solving them. It's uh, unpopular to reduce the debt and it's unpopular to impose restrictions that are going to hinder our economy in the short term and solve climate change in the long term. Um, so uh, to talk about the carbon tax, uh, economists have long promoted promote it as a government measure to reduce, to recognize the externalities of carbon emissions and accurately price its production. Uh, so it's the simplest way to reduce uh, carbon emissions. And economists would say, you tax it, they're gonna do less of it. Uh, but the current calls for action on climate change 
uh, suggests that in increases in spending on energy infrastructure, refurbishing existing infrastructure to make it climate fr friendly, rather than increases in taxation. We've seen this with sort of the Biden-Harris proposal uh, is that they're going to spend a lot of money and create jobs on infrastructure rather than uh, imposing a carbon tax. Uh, what do you think about large-scale climate infrastructure investments, and do you see them as a, uh, a competitor or a complement to carbon, to carbon tax proposals like yours? And I would add, just to pivot off the uh, VAT tax, what similarities do you see in those two uh, tax proposals, and how could they work hand-in-hand um, -hand, uh, in, in making sure that both of them, when imposed, would be progressive rather than uh, hitting the, the poorest the hardest? Okay, great questions. Uh, the comparison is pretty simple. The VAT is a tax on overall consumption. The carbon tax is a tax on consumption of the of, of carbon. So uh, the incidence would be about the same across income groups, but it would only apply to the uh, consumption of carbon as opposed to uh, all consumption. Um, I think a carbon tax is a very good idea, bordering on a no-brainer. Uh, I think these other ideas about investing in infrastructure, uh, uh, investing in alternative energy are, are good ideas too. Uh, I view them as compliments, uh, but uh, I think it's important that a carbon tax be part of the package uh, because it will send the right signals to the market, to consumers and producers in the market, that uh, uh, using dirty energy creates externalities. And uh, uh, that seems to me to be the basis of, of uh, getting environmental policy right. So I'm all in favor of the spending initiatives as well, but I don't think of them as substitute. Uh, for the carbon tax. Indeed, the carbon tax, it's, uh, the carbon tax could finance those initiatives. A uh, colleague of mine at the Tax Policy Center, Donald Marin, has done work that showed that people actually favor using the carbon tax revenues uh, in that, in that uh, manner. Uh, Bill, I guess one interesting observation we see in today's uh, political gridlock is that but there's no bipartisan consensus a lot of times on issues. So, for example, on, on issues of climate change or carbon tax, uh, carbon tax seems to me to be something that the Republicans should be advocating for because it's fiscally prudent, it's pro-deregulation, it's pro-free markets, whatever. It's part of that conservative philosophy. But even that, they are reluctant to stand behind a carbon tax, uh, which would have certainly satisfied a lot of those ideals. So, so I, I would love to hear a thoughts. Does that reveal some kind of weakness in, in the way that public finance debates or taxation debates are being talked about in the current political discourse, such that th there's just no bipartisan consensus on issues of VAT or, uh, or carbon tax, even though these are clearly satisfying both sides' demands? Yeah, I think it's a failure of the political system more than uh, anything else, the carbon tax, a, a carbon tax would make the economy more efficient. And so all the kind of free market uh, arguments against it don't work. Uh, in fact, they work in favor uh, of a carbon tax rather than against a carbon tax. Production emission of carbon creates externalities. 
negative externalities and uh, any basic microeconomics course will tell you that therefore they should be taxed. Uh, it turns out it's not that hard to impose a carbon tax at the, at the wellhead, so to speak. Uh, and um, uh, the evidence suggests it would generate a fair amount of revenue, about a percent of GDP uh, that could either be returned to taxpayers or some form or used to finance uh, the research we just, or, or, or renovation we discussed, uh, or to pay down future debt. I see. Um, so, so I guess to, to speak a little bit more about how we can shape federal spending under this current political gridlock, you, you previously recommended that the government reduce uh, Medicare reimbursement rates, reform Social Security to prevent a meltdown of the program when it ran out of the funds. Um, these are two of the most popular and expensive items in the federal budget, as we talked about. Uh, I guess, what kind of political preconditions do you think would make these reforms politically viable? Uh, why do you think it's somewhat urgent to, to reform them? Uh, the political system is, even in the best of, <coughs> even in the best of circumstances, the political system was designed to make big changes difficult. If you compare our system to the parliamentary system in the UK, for example, there a majority party comes to the power, they enact their proposals. Here, you know, you have to pass the House, you have to pass the Senate, you have to get the president to sign it, you have to get, you know, so on. There are lots of obstacles, there are lots of points where stuff can be undone, especially when you have split um, power. Uh, so layer on top of that, the partisanship and frankly nonsense that has been going on uh, in, I think in particular in the Republican party the last couple of years. And uh, it makes it almost impossible to enact uh, constructive uh, public policy. Hopefully that will change uh, as, as uh, President Trump leaves office uh, and President Biden comes in. Uh, but I, I feel like the last few years have been kind of a global low point in terms of things like respect for logic, respect for evidence, uh, respect for the truth, and so on. So hopefully the country has learned from that and we're ready uh, to move on. But uh, I don't have any magic uh, wand to wave over the political system uh, to make it work. Yeah, I think uh, I think across the aisle, um, everyone, and I think the, the most recent uh, COVID bill negotiations have demonstrated this, that the gridlock in Congress um, is unacceptable um, in a lot of ways and their inefficiencies um, are quite, have become quite visible recently. Um, I want to talk spe specifically about um, the Republican Party and the Democrats today. Um, so the Republican Party is a party of tax cuts, the Democrats, a party of tax increases, particularly on the wealthy. This is the way uh, a lot of politicians and a lot of the public sees uh, the two parties. Uh, but I think such a binary understanding of tax policy can be flawed. How do you recommend that everyday Americans uh, go about the effort of understanding the taxes they're paying or not paying uh, and the economics lingo that they may not understand in the context of a very 
polarized and divided uh, Congress and national discourse at large? Uh, how can they understand uh, the different positions of the two parties on tax policy specifically? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think that the Republicans, when they have been in control of all three branches or all three, uh, you know, the two houses in the White House, uh, uh, have both cut taxes and raised spending. Uh, the Democrats uh, under Clinton, Obama, and now uh, in the next few weeks, Biden, uh, have basically had to come in and clean up messes. Uh, that were left uh, for them. And um, Clinton did raise taxes and cut spending. Uh, Obama uh, was faced the financial crisis and responded to that. But other than that, had fairly conservative fiscal policy. And we'll see what Biden, uh, what Biden does. But it, it's, it's, uh, it's not, you ask a hard question. I'm not sure I can give a really simple answer about, about uh, what each party uh, thinks. The general tendency, I will say, over the last 50, 60 years is that when one party controls the House, the Senate, and the White House at the same time, deficits go up. All right, you get anything from the, like, Kennedy Johnson, had a tax cut in the Great Society, uh, Bush and in uh, uh, his Congress to cut taxes and raise military and domestic spending. Uh, Obama did the same thing in the first two years. Trump did the same thing in the first two years. The one exception was Clinton, who actually raised taxes in the first two years, even though he had a Democratic Congress. Bill, perhaps we can shift a little bit about looking forward since you brought up uh, President-elect Biden and uh, he obviously, at least for now, we don't know how the Georgia Senate runoff would turn out. He doesn't have a blue wave. He doesn't have full control of the houses, but he has personally promised to raise back taxes uh, on, on the first day of his, uh, of his administration. He has previously promised that. He has said that he will um, bring back the capital gains tax, bring back the corporate taxes, uh, raise them back to the pre-Trump rates. Uh, do you see that happening, especially given uh, the nascent economic recovery in, in light of COVID? A lot of people are saying that you cannot raise taxes, at least not in the short term, simply because of the, all the challenges posed by COVID. Uh, we're in a, uh, I don't know if we're technically in a recession right now, but the economy is operating well below capacity. A, a recession has to do with uh, declining output rather than the level of output. So our level of output may be going up, but it's low relative to our capacity. So it's probably not the greatest time uh, to raise taxes. I don't know that... Um, well, well, let's take a step back. Biden's tax proposals were put out during the presidential campaign uh, at a time when Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren were proposing massive, just massive tax increases. And Biden's proposals were not as large as theirs, uh, but they were still sizable. 
uh, quite sizable. Uh, I don't, I never thought that his proposals would get through even a Democratic Congress uh, unscathed. Uh, I've always thought maybe about half of them, you know, in terms of revenue would get through. That would not be some massive tax increase. That would be, that would get us, you know, closer to tax levels in the Reagan era, uh, but it would not be some unprecedented uh, uh, tax level. Uh, I don't think there's an urgency to do that during uh, the downturn though. The most important thing is to get the virus under control. And then my guess is that when that happens, uh, there's gonna be enormous pent up demand and pent up supply and that if we can get the virus under control, that the economy is going to bounce back fairly quickly. At that point, we can start thinking about medium-term and long-term uh, issues. But right now, especially with interest rates low and the economy in the dire situation that it is and the pandemic spreading, uh, we really need to focus on, on the pandemic. COVID policy is economic policy right now. We, we have to get the virus under control. Yeah, um, I just want to follow up on that and talk a little bit about uh, some of the Biden campaign's other promises and not specifically the ones that he unveiled during the primaries. Uh, he's promised to repeal Trump's signature tax reform, the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And I know you've done some analysis of this tax reform, the impact it had on the American economy, um, if successful um, in the short term, uh, presuming this is in 2021, uh, during the still during the pandemic recovery, if if he's successful in repealing this tax reform, what will this do to our post-pandemic economy? Um, based on your previous analysis of the tax reform and the current economic landscape uh, during the pandemic, yeah, I, I don't think there would be anywhere near enough support to just repeal. Uh, the 2017 Act. I think there are particular provisions like the uh, the subsidy for pass-through businesses, which were particularly poorly thought out and uh, basically need to be extinguished. Uh, some of the international rules uh, were extraordinarily novel and were written uh, without much regulation and with some obvious flaws and uh, they could be usefully reformed and Biden has some reforms along those lines. But I think the basic, uh, uh, I'd be surprised if we went, if we, if we reversed kind of the, some of the basic features uh, of the 2017 act. Uh, and I think anything, I think it's much more likely that they would simply try to let the temporary features expire when they're due in 20, to expire in 2025. Uh, again, you, you don't really wanna be raising taxes uh, with the economy operating so far below capacity. I mean, this is a, that's true in any recession. Uh, this recession is just different from uh, other recessions in that um, uh, we, we wanted people in the spring when we passed the CARES Act we wanted people to get out of the labor force. Uh, uh, some people described it as a medically induced coma that policymakers put the economy in. As we wanted people to stop interacting, stop working, stop you know, 
start social distancing. And uh, the idea of the original package in the spring was to provide relief, to provide support for people while they observe public health guidelines and so that we could get the virus under control. Uh, the federal government failed to get the virus under control, failed in a big way. And so now we're doing the same relief package again, they're not quite as large, but the same, the same issues arise nine months later, uh, and we're still uh, trying to get the virus under control. But that has to be, un until, until that happens, uh, uh, it, it needs to remain the top focus of government policy. Bill, would you mind telling us a little bit more about the $900 billion fiscal relief bill that was just passed yesterday, where I guess your projection of how this round of fiscal stimulus would impact our deficit down the road? Sure. Uh, it, it turns out they passed several bills. And uh, as James mentioned, it was only yesterday they passed the 5,600 pages. So we're still learning about a variety of provisions in it, uh, but it, the bills do a remarkable amount of things. There's an omnibus budget resolution that keeps agencies open uh, for the rest of the fiscal year. Uh, there are a bunch of climate change uh, provisions in it, which were a surprise to me. There are tax expenditures. There's, uh, they dealt with surprise medical billing, which, which also surprised me. Uh, in terms of the, the narrow relief bill itself, uh, it's a big, messy bill. There's some good stuff. There's some bad stuff. Uh, basically, I feel like it's too little, too late. Uh, yes, $900 billion is a lot of money. It's bigger than almost any other relief package we've had in our history, uh, but it's small compared to what they could have done and could usefully have done. And then the timing is, uh, you know, they could have done this in August. Even McConnell, uh, who was a big source of the delay, uh, says that this could have been passed earlier. So um, the good things are the unemployment insurance extension, the renewal of per person payments, the uh, new paycheck uh, loan program. There was a boost in food stamps and electronic benefit transfers for, for kids to get uh, food. And there was an extension of the rental eviction moratorium. Those are all good. Probably the worst aspect of the bill was there, there's no aid for state and local governments in here. And let me pause on that and explain. Uh, this is a problem for both humanitarian and economic reasons. The humanitarian issue is that most of the services that people get from government come from state and local governments, not from the federal government. Uh, the economic issue is that state and local governments have balanced budget rules. So when the economy turns down in a recession, state revenues fall, which means states either have to raise tax rates or cut spending during the recession, right? That's exactly the wrong response that you would like from a macro perspective, right? Uh, you don't want them creating a drag on the economy. So the federal government supported the states they would avoid that drag uh, on the economy. But for political reasons, the Republicans opposed this uh, and kept it out of the bill. There are some other issues like making the expenses uh, that the PPP covered 
making those expenses deductible for firms, which is just double dipping basically. And uh, there was this almost ridiculous provision to make 100% of business meals deductible. If you think about it, making business meals deductible in normal times is questionable policy because people have to eat anyway. And, and arguing that this was a business meal rather than just a regular personal consumption uh, is an iffy thing. But during a pandemic, making business meal deductions totally deductible is a really dumb idea, uh, both for the economic reason I mentioned, but also because the last thing we want to do is subsidize people gathering together closely to each other and taking their masks off. Uh, so like during a pandemic, this is just a particularly dumb policy uh, uh, to implement. So, you know, there's some good stuff in the bill. There's some bad stuff in the bill. Uh, uh, you expect that with a $900 billion uh, uh, package. They certainly left a big agenda for next year. Uh, but uh, I do want to emphasize that there was there were some good things done here and some relief uh, is better than no relief for the tens of millions of households that are struggling. Phil, I'm glad you brought up the implication of, of COVID-19 for you know, state and local public finances. And, and you mentioned how obviously states need to have balanced budgets and state couldn't issue their own currency and print their own money. So they're bounded by certain limitations. I still remember during the summer, uh, Jeff Clemens of UC San Diego and Stan Voiger of American Enterprise Institute wrote this uh, paper about uh, how the Congressional Budget Office would lead a, a shortfall of roughly $106 billion in state sales and income tax revenues for the 2021 fiscal year. Uh, that's equivalent to 0.5% of GDP and 11.5% of our pre-COVID sales and income tax projections. And there are some very significant shortfalls in, in state level uh, tax revenues. So, I guess to address that issue, I guess going forward, uh, there's a lot of criticism of people saying, oh, everything is big packages in, in this big bail. They're bailing out cities and, and uh, poorly managed cities, poorly managed public finances and local governments. Uh, that shouldn't happen. So would you mind just giving us a little bit more detail in, into uh, this kind of, whether you call it bailout or relief for a state and local governments in, in, in COVID? Sure. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, I think that the notion, no one is, no one was seriously proposing bailing out states that due to their uh, inappropriate fiscal policy in the past. The, there are states that have that problem and, and they're being left to, to deal with it. The issue is that the recession that COVID created and the, uh, the, Medic the medically induced coma in which policymakers place the economy uh, caused states to lose revenues. Uh, you don't, that was through no fault of the states, right? Uh, and uh, you don't want to leave the states to have to cut spending during a recession uh, to make up for that. It's as if you know, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and Roosevelt said, okay, each of the states needs to get their own army and their own air force together to respond to this national threat. Uh, uh, 
COVID create was a national threat. It came from over, you know, overseas. Uh, it's perfectly appropriate for the federal government to step in and help the states deal with that with that problem. The I, the argument that they were bailing out blue states was was just a, a, a I forget a red flag is that the expression? Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's just that's that that was never the issue. A straw man argument. Um, yeah, I just uh, putting aside the uh, straw man of uh, Republicans' arguments against the blue state bailout. Uh, what happened on the state level is that we have the opposite, like you're saying, the opposite, the opposite of an automatic stabilizer, assuming that the state budget has to stay the same. It's the opposite of what you want. And the automatic stabilizers during a recession, we automatically increase spending through welfare benefits and unemployment benefits, and we automatically decrease taxation through lowered uh, income taxes during a recession. And obviously that's uh, assuming the state has to have a balanced budget, that's the opposite of what's gonna happen on the state level. Now on the federal level, what we've seen is the federal level and the federal government intervening to supplement those unemployment benefits. In the, in the most recent round, um, they've done this sort of automatic stabilization through an additional $300 in unemployment benefits. Some have argued that this is gonna provide a disincentive to work, that the, 600, the additional 600 back in the summer that provide a disincentive to work for uh, lower class, uh, you know, people in the bottom half of the income spectrum. Uh, do you think there's any merit to the argument that additional unemployment benefits are going to disincentivize work and slow down a recovery? Um, and if there is any disincentive that's going to depress the employment rate, does that actually have a, an important impact on broader economic recovery if it's just unemployment benefits in the short term? Uh, so there's two issues here. One is the evidence is does not support the view that that the pandemic unemployment insurance uh, caused people to stop looking for work. Uh, the number of unemployed people was way higher uh, than the number of vacancies uh, in the summer. Uh, the second comes back to this issue about this recession being different than other recessions and uh, the difference between relief and stimulus. Relief is what we pay people so that they stay out of the labor force and observe the social distancing and the public health guidelines so that we can get the virus under control and then get the economy back going. Stimulus is what you do when you wanna get people working again. Right now, I think what we need is relief. We need, we need to, we need to keep people essentially away from each other while we solve the virus, while we resolve the issues that the virus is creating, get the virus under control. Once we do that, then it, to me, it makes sense to shift uh, to stimulus, but I'm not sure we'll need stimulus at that point. As I mentioned earlier, I think the pent up supply and demand will be so big that people will come back to, you know, people will want to, go out to restaurants, they'll want to travel, they'll want to go to the movies, and that will that demand will create, will cause firms to hire people and, and get people back in the labor force. So I can't emphasize enough that the, what we need to do right now is get people out of the way and get the virus under control. And once we do that, the sky's the limit. Yeah, that's really interesting. In one of our questions, we had, uh, 
a, a difference, I think it was uh, from Apollo Group, their projections uh, about how we're going to reach the economic levels of output that we had before the pandemic. And they were suggesting that we would need after a round of relief, I think this graph is uh, down on uh, page seven, uh, that after the pandemic and after we pass relief bills that are going to discourage people from working when they don't have to, that after that we would need additional stimulus in the neighborhood of two to three trillion dollars uh, to actually hit our pre-pandemic levels of output. And you're saying that we can we can hope to reach those pre-pandemic levels of output, reach full unemployment uh, with this pent-up demand that we're going to have. We don't need additional government stimulus on the same scale as the CARES Act or the 900 billion dollars of relief and stimulus joint packages that we've seen so far. Uh, I'm not quite saying that. I'm saying that that I think that there will be this very natural, significant boost in economic activity if we can get the virus under control. Whether that boost is significant enough to get us all the way back to where we were before, uh, I don't know, and uh, probably probably not. Uh, uh, but it could it, it could get us uh, a long way there. I mean, just do the thought experiment if. If the virus disappeared today, right, uh, and people could go back doing what they were doing, and uh, I think there would be, there, there definitely will be some changes uh, in the world. Like uh, I'm not going into the office five days a week ever again, uh, but uh, uh, but there would be an enormous burst of economic activity uh, if the virus were suddenly eradicated. Right. And uh, uh, so I'm not saying we won't need stimulus uh, at that point, but I'm saying that, that there will be this, I, in my view, there will be this significant increase in economic activity because people are holding back uh, so much uh, under current circumstances, as, as they should be. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that definitely squares with uh, that graph that we had pointed out. Uh, and it's very hard to tell, I think, at this point, what the post-pandemic economy will look like, how vaccinations will roll out. And so I guess that that question is still sort of up in the air. Uh, I was just really interested on your take on what actually delayed uh, the COVID bill, the $900 billion of targeted stimulus and relief. Uh, and it didn't have to do with state and local aid and didn't have to do with, you know, what the Republicans wanted, which was uh, corporate uh, protections for liability protection for corporations. Uh, the 11th hour negotiations over the latest stimulus bill, the main obstacle to the, to the bill's passage was surprisingly over monetary policy. It was about the extension of the Fed's emergency lending facilities that aimed to support businesses and municipalities. Uh, Senator Pat Toomey from Pennsylvania uh, ultimately prevailed and prevented the replication of these, uh, these Fed facilities. Uh, do you think the funding from the Treasury that backstopped the Fed, the, the Fed lending facilities, um, would be better spent on other programs, um, as the Senator argued? And what do you think about the Fed creeping into direct corporate relief, uh, a form of economic aid that has been typically reserved for fiscal policy when you look back at the, uh, the, the financial crisis and historically during this crisis, uh, the Fed sort of moving into corporate aid directly. Uh, what do you think about that? And what, what do you think about the difference between monetary tools uh, and uh, fiscal tools that the government has right now? Uh, I think for much of the year, the 
Fed acted like the adults in the room and did what it thought was necessary to do because Congress uh, was stalling. Uh, why Congress was stalling, uh, I think, has to do with the politics of the election uh, and the administration. And I, I can't give you a, a detailed answer, but, the, but I can say the Fed has been incredibly uh, proactive and creative in, uh, as far as I can tell, averting financial disaster. Uh, and they should be thanked for that. Uh, not punished. Uh, in terms of the negotiations, if you look at what was, well, two things. One is, it's not clear to me yet whether the bill that was passed ruled out just the particular programs that the Fed had done or the whole class of interventions. I think the Democrats are claiming that the Fed can still do those class of interventions. But if you fuzz back from that a little bit and look at what the negotiations about, uh, it's, it's just, it's remarkable to me the the Democrats were pushing for things like aid to state and local governments that would help people acquire more services from the government in time of need. The Republicans were trying to restrict the government's ability uh, to intervene on behalf of the economy. And uh, I don't know any polite, more subtle way uh, to say that, but the, the, the parties really revealed their soul uh, in these negotiations. Bill, I guess James is transitioning, helping us transition to a greater topic. And you said Fed is playing a more active role. So if we take that to the extreme, that would be modern monetary theory, which is something that's been on a lot of people's mind these days, especially with this, uh, I have the book here, The Deficit Myth, uh, Modern Monetary Theory, uh, is written by Stephanie Caldwell. It's like a bestseller right now. Uh, a lot of young people are reading it and, and saying that that don't matter. And balanced budget is a, is a fallacy and you can simply print your problems away and the Fed should play a more active role monetizing the debt or um, issuing current issuing newly printed money to uh, fund uh, helpful programs on climate change or alleviate inequality so what are your general thoughts on, on on modern monetary theory or some of those proposals uh so first thing the fed is monetizing enormous amount of uh the debt right now um the fed can't literally buy bonds from the treasury so the treasury sells in the open market and the fed buys from the open market but from 2019 to 2021 uh the fed is essentially going to buy about 70 percent of the increase in federal debt uh according to the congressional budget office so um uh i think i i don't i don't fully understand monetary modern monetary theory because I've never seen it uh, laid out in a framework that makes sense to me. Uh, I will say that fiscal policy with very low interest rates uh, that we have now shares a lot of common characteristics with what I understand mon modern monetary theory uh, to say. Uh, but I would like 
modern monetary theorists to distinguish more carefully between what we call positive economics and normative economics, which is positive economics being how the world works and normative economics being how the world should work. And I find it very confusing in MMT discussions uh, to understand whether, when and whether they're talking about one versus the other. I guess what would be, I guess from your perspective, what MMT people are, are saying, they don't have a comprehensive framework per se, but it seems that what they're saying is we have historically low interest rates. And if you keep printing money right now, we're not going to see inflation anytime soon. So you should keep printing money uh, and, and keep monetizing those debt and keep using those debt for good purposes, such as funding public education or something. Uh, and we can stop that when we see signs of inflation. And because interest rates are not going up, because we're not seeing any signs of inflation, uh, we, we should just keep doing this. And, and well, that's what conventional fiscal policy would tell you too right now with interest rates being really low. But for example, modern monetary theorists say that uh, uh, when there's inflation, Congress raises taxes. Is that, is that a statement about what actually happens or is that a statement about what they think should happen uh, in that situation? I've never been clear. If it's a statement about what actually happens, uh, I think it's demonstrably false. If it's a statement about what should happen, then then it requires uh, some more, uh, uh, it requires placing your model. Uh, why do you think it's demonstrably false? Uh, which part? I don't it? see Congress raising taxes in times of inflation. The, you think about the big inflation we had in the 70s, Congress cut taxes dramatically uh, uh, following that. Um, if you look, yeah, it just, it, I never detected any such pattern. So, uh, I see. I, anyway, I, I think, um, as I said, I think with, when interest rates are really low, if you look at stuff like Jason Furman and Larry Summers are talking about right now, uh, it's very similar to what modern monetary theorists are saying, uh, at least for short-run policy. Uh, but if interest rate rates were to rise, uh, you'd get different stories from uh, Keynesian fiscal policy versus modern monetary theory. Do you think it almost seems to be the path of least resistance right now? Because I still remember, I think earlier in October, the IMF kind of reversed advice from like a decade ago and said advanced economies do not need to cut public spending or even raise taxes after the pandemic, uh, which was kind of a very different response back in you know 2010 or 2012 when we had the Greek or Eurozone crises. And back then, even though they were having somewhat of an economic crisis, we were saying they need to engage in austerity, they need to cut down public spending, uh, raise taxes. So, so do you think that the public discourse or at least has, been, has shifted dramatically because we're somehow not seeing efficacy of, of monetary, uh, monetary policy because monetary policy at this point, because the in low interest rate is almost out of tool. Um, do, do you see the, the, the discourse shifting dramatically in policymaking community? Uh, I think we've seen enormous success of monetary policy the last 
uh, decade. Uh, I think what's different in the prescription of places like uh, the IMF or, or conventional economists is uh, the economy is operating way below capacity and interest rates are extremely low. And there are some very obvious uh, social investments, whether it's in children or infrastructure or whatever that, that are sitting there on the horizon. And that combination uh, of things uh, uh, suggests we should, we should move more aggressively on fiscal policy. Yeah, I, uh, I wanted to follow up on that and, and sort of look into what sort of spending we could do now, taking advantage of these very low interest rates to do what you say is truly investment spending, spending now on education, on infrastructure, on research, uh, that's actually gonna pay off in the future. Uh, and do you think we should embark on a, or, or pass major spending in those areas and, and the sort of spending that you talk about in fiscal therapy right now, uh, when we have these low interest rates, that's gonna enable us to have those returns in the future with human capital in terms of education, uh, payoffs in terms of infrastructure and research and alternative energies. Do you think we should sort of seize the moment with these very low interest rates and finance those that investment with uh, with debt right now that's going to have you know next to zero interest rates. Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, in fiscal therapy, I carved out enough room to spend an additional one percent of GDP uh, per year on a variety of social policy and uh, safety net uh, uh, ideas. Uh, in part because the evidence suggests that these things pay off, uh, maybe not completely, but significantly uh, in the long term. And I'm not just talking about education, I'm talking about healthcare interventions for kids, uh, 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 WIC, you know, food programs, et cetera. Uh, uh, so that was, that was then, now with the economy facing more need and interest rates even lower, uh, the case is even stronger. So, yes. Um, yeah, and uh, sorry, I, I want to ask, um, I want to transition a little bit to some of your other work. We focused on uh, fiscal policy and taxing and spending uh, more broadly, especially in the context of COVID. But I want to transition to some of your work on wealth in America and specifically your proposals for a wealth tax uh, how could that, two questions here, how could that be uh, administered effectively? And two, do you see uh, the potential for generating the political capital for a wealth tax that could finance some of these investments in WIC, in uh, education, in uh, inter health interventions for children, in infrastructure uh, that are really going to pay off in the future? And can you talk about what a wealth tax looks like uh, for some of our listeners who might not be as familiar with this, uh, with this idea? Uh, sure. Let me let me start with clarification. I have not proposed a direct wealth tax. Uh, uh, I have noted that the value-added tax would would tax wealth, but uh, I'm not sure that a direct wealth tax would work. I'm intrigued by it, and I'd like to know more about it. But there are issues with valuing non-marketable assets and stuff like that that have me concerned. I will say that uh, Emmanuel Sias and Gabriel Zuckman at Berkeley have done a tremendous job putting the wealth tax on the table 
as as uh, as an uh, as a policy option to be discussed. I think it it merits serious consideration. I'm just not ready to sign off on it yet, personally myself. Right. I, I, uh, I, I, I do think we could raise taxes on high income households uh, in a number of ways, uh, tightening the taxation of capital gains, uh, raising the top rate, uh, 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 jiggering the tax taxation of business income uh, and so on. So I think there's an enormously strong case for raising taxes on high income, high wealth households. And right now I'm willing uh, to consider all the options. So I, I wanted to clarify, I sort of meant, I just watched uh, your video you had done explaining what a, what a wealth tax is. And so I just want to sort of dive into your thoughts on, um, uh, on the wealth tax generally and how we can tax the wealthy. Um, and so that that obviously makes a lot of sense. Um, and in terms of using different tools that we have to uh, tax the one percent and the most wealthy in America. Uh, I'm glad you brought up that I, I just have the book right in front of me, The Triumph of Injustice. Uh, I have all the I have all that my public finance books uh, all, all, all here. But you, you were talking about uh, the wealth tax. Would you mind telling us, I guess, a little bit more uh, about uh, why you think uh, wealth tax is, is not there yet and, and your contrast from that? Because so, Elizabeth Tara uh, made it very popular. So it, it's, uh, first, one argument you'll hear against wealth taxes, which is not valid for the US, is that a bunch of European countries had wealth taxes and most of them have removed the wealth taxes. Uh, and that, speak, that, that really doesn't speak to what Saez and Zuckman are talking about because the European wealth taxes had relatively low thresholds. As a result, they exempted certain types of assets. As a result, there was a lot of avoidance and shifting into those assets. And on top of that, in European countries, you can avoid the tax by living somewhere else. Uh, in the US, you have to renounce your citizenship to avoid U.S. taxes, and that's obviously a much bigger hurdle. But the wealth tax that they've talked about, that Elizabeth Warren talked about, was a 2% tax on wealth above $50 million. So you pay nothing on the first $50 million and then 2% of your wealth above $50 million. That generates a surprisingly large amount of revenue. Uh, uh, there's a lot of wealth up there. And the issue is, is uh, how to value it. Uh, stocks are pretty easy to value, but for example, a, sh uh, a share in a family business uh, may be difficult to value, uh, uh, you know, art, stuff like that, stuff that's not sold in the market uh, every year or valued in the market every year. So there are ways uh, to value that. And uh, uh, I, I, I don't want to reject the idea of a wealth tax. As I said, I'm just ready. I'm not ready to buy into it completely uh, the way I am some other proposals. Like the, James asked me, do we, should we have more investment? The answer is yes. Should we, should we have a wealth tax? I'm not sure, but it's a very intriguing idea. What about some of the more normative arguments such as, oh, if you have a wealth tax that would deter people from becoming more entrepreneurial. Uh, it's just, it seems that we always make normative moral ethical arguments when it comes to public finance. So like if you forgive people's debt, uh, they'll become less responsible. <laughs> if you tax the rich more, they'll be, be less entrepreneurial. Do, do you think any of those arguments hold? 
I, I think it's important to think about the, the tax involved. If somebody's thinking of starting a company and they find out that if they accumulate wealth of $50 million, wealth above that is taxed at 2%, that doesn't strike me as the biggest disincentive. I mean, if you, if you uh, told, I don't know, take Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, and let's say they're worth $100 billion, and some are worth more, some are less. If you told them that uh, we have this tax that uh, would reduce your wealth by 2% per year, would you not do the things you do? Would you not have done the things you do? I don't think they would say that. I mean, I just, I, I don't think people sitting in their garage are thinking about what the capital gains tax rate is going to be 10 years from now. Uh, I mean, you're talking about massive wealth creation. And uh, uh, I just think that uh, there is room, maybe 2% is the wrong rate. I think 6% or 8% is too high, for example. Uh, I don't know exactly what the right rate is, but I, I just don't see uh, that they are, entrepreneurs are necessarily motivated by the very last dollar they could possibly accumulate. Most people, I think, think they have a good idea. They want to try to succeed in business. They know they're going to be rewarded if they do well. Uh, but I just have a hard time believing that, that it would stop uh, entrepreneurial activity or, or significantly reduce entrepreneurial activity. So, so we talked about wealth tax, we talked about VAT, we talked about carbon tax. I, I guess one uh, term we haven't really touched on is consumption tax, which I guess is very much related with VAT, with carbon tax. I, this is the last book I'll, I'll cite uh, is here uh, by, by Professor Robert Frank. Uh, under the influence, we, we had him on the show uh, a couple months ago, and he he's a big proponent of uh, progressive consumption tax. And even Bill Gates sometimes says this, uh, don't tax my income, tax my consumption. And if you tax the rich people's consumptions, uh, they'll be less incentivized to, to uh, consume and, and uh, emit carbon and such and so on. So what do you think of that? Uh, well, the value added tax is a consumption tax. Yes. And it becomes a progressive consumption tax by adding the, the universal basic income to it. Uh, first thing I should say, the You've got a great collection of books there. So uh, 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 that's very encouraging. Uh, there are two ways to get to a progressive consumption tax. One is what I just suggested, the value added tax with a UBI. That's a transactions-based consumption tax with a UBI. The other way, what Professor Frank has proposed is essentially, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, like, like the income tax, except you subtract out saving, and so you're left with consumption. And uh, it's a great idea conceptually. Administratively, it's more difficult uh, than it might appear. And so, for example, there was something called the USA tax proposed uh, maybe 25 years ago that uh, uh, turned out to be very difficult to design. And uh, actually, Ruth Ginsburg's husband, a guy named Marty Ginsburg, 
who was a professor at Georgetown Law, as well as having other uh, uh, well-known legal career. Marty Ginsburg wrote a paper showing essentially how you could utterly game a system like that. And uh, I think that was very influential uh, in the tax world. So most of the time when people propose consumption taxes, they propose transactions-based consumption taxes like, like the VAT. I just wanted to uh, ask one sort of broader question. The recent uh, spending bill, both the omnibus spending bill and the uh, $900 billion of stimulus has prompted what I like to think of as these doomsday projections from the remaining fiscal hawks uh, in the political discourse uh, today, saying that the next generations will never be able to shoulder the debt that has been accumulated uh, over the past decades and then this year specifically. Uh, just broadly speaking, I know this is an impossibly broad question, but do you, do you have faith that our generation uh, is going to be able to shoulder the debt burden that we're going to inherit when we, you know, become, uh, you know, uh, the, the age that we're going to be uh, responsible for this stuff? Uh, yeah, I have more faith that you will be able to do so the quicker we get the economy going again. And the more we invest uh, in the people uh, of the country. Uh, so the, the argument of caring about future generations uh, relates directly to the notion of getting the virus under control, uh, investing in the health and food and education uh, of the young generation uh, and so on. It, it, the argument that we should kind of turn to austerity uh, for the sake of future generations, I think is exactly backwards. I, I see, uh, Bill, because in your book, there's this one quote that I find it really interesting. You said, in recent decades, we have set aside the historical notion that each generation should pay off its debts. At the same time, it is no longer automatic that each generation will be better off than the one before it. Thus, one reason to address the debt problem is to avoid unduly burdening our children and grandchildren uh, and, and I find that quite powerful, but I also, on, on the other hand, when I look around some of my friends, I, I feel like kids these days don't care about the debt anymore. They, 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 they see it, they, they don't care about balanced budget anymore. They see it as this abstract figure that hasn't caused them any problems. And they don't remember being at a time when there wasn't a big debt. Uh, so, so it almost seems that they will be less incentivized to, to enact such policies and, and, and be more in favor of dramatic spending, big government, uh, reducing inequality, such and so on? Well, this is a great question because the key word in what he read is unduly. Uh, <laughs> and it comes back to the very first question, which was what's the book talking about? It's not just the increase in debt, but it's the way the money is being spent, the way the revenues are being raised. And uh, uh, to put that initial answer in the context of the discussion we're having now, we need to spend money the spend the money in the way that will help future generations um, not just pay off the debt, but live uh, good lives, live, live prosperous lives. And so there's, I mean, there's, it's tempting in the debt discussion to only focus on the cost of policies, but uh, uh, the benefits of policies matter tremendously. And that is how we use the money. If we use the money wisely, uh, will make current generations and future generations better off. 
Uh, Bill, we've been going on for a long time, so I guess this is probably the last uh, question I'll, I'll ask you before we wrap up, which is, uh, do you see, uh, this is something I've been thinking about, do you see any uh, similarity between uh, something like climate change and something like the deficit problem? I mean, we, we talked about at the beginning that there, it's not as urgent, it's not, probably not the same thing, uh, but another difference I noticed is that it's very hard to ask people to take on individual responsibility when it comes to uh, the, the the deficit, right? It's very hard for people to, to, it's different from saying you shouldn't drive an SUV around and you should recycle and therefore you don't contribute to the climate change. Whereas it, it seems very hard for an average person to feel like they are contributing to the deficit problem where they're helping alleviate the deficit uh, problem. So I, I guess my slightly philosophical question posed to you here is, do, do you think we need a mass behavioral or, or men mentality change in the American public in order to, to have the, to generate the political backing and political will in order to get this done? Or do you think it's more like this problem can be easily solved with, if we simply tax the rich and we should not lay the political burden or, on, on the rest of Americans? The Americans have nothing to do with this. Well, that is a great question that kind of ties in everything uh, <laughs> we've talked about. I meant to draw the parallels between climate change and fiscal policy when we were talking about climate change earlier. Uh, uh, climate change, you know, is, has a lot of similarities. It's a long-term concern. Uh, it's not evident every day as you walk around. Uh, yet, if you believe the evidence, it's, it's a problem. And we need to do something about it uh, quickly. And, and um, uh, I think it's not a question of whether should, we should just tax the rich or whether everyone should pitch in. Um, it's really a question about the relative contributions of different parts of society, whether it's rich, poor, this generation, next generation, uh, et cetera. Um, and those are political issues. Uh, society in its wisdom uh, has to make those choices, but what what the political uh, process for both of those issues has in common is that the unborn don't have votes, and uh, that biases both of those uh, toward the current generation and away from future generations. So the issues you're raising, the issues that I tried to raise in the book are essentially an effort to counter that bias against future generations that occurs for the simple reason that they don't exist yet. I see. I guess the last question I would have for you is since the name of our show is Policy Punchline, what would be your punchline here for our listeners to take away? Uh, punchline is we have a long-term issue with the debt and the composition of spending uh, but we should not let that stand in the way of the vital concerns we have right now to control the pandemic and get the economy going again after that. And Bill, how can people learn more about your work? How, how can they follow you? Obviously, they should go purchase the book. So. Yeah, um, I'm on the Brookings website. Uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, so uh, all the usual ways. <laughs> Well, that was uh, at our interview with uh, Dr. Bill Gill from the Brookings Institution. We, we uh, 
really appreciate you joining us today, Bill. And we hope our listeners could go purchase book, uh, Fiscal Therapy, Curing America's Debt Addiction and Investing uh, in, in the Future. As, as always, you can follow us on policypunchline.com. Uh, uh, on Twitter at Policy Punchline. You can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. You can uh, watch the original recording of this uh, interview as well. So, well, thank you so much for, for listening today. And thank you for joining us, Dr. Gale and James. Thank you very much.